Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Bitch Tits Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. These old How things. These, those, old, those old hogs. <laughs> those old fun bags. Forget I was, about uh, that. I was going to go with Dagan Fisticuffs. Oh. Moriarty. Well, you're wrong. No. That's I'm not totally what I'm going for. About that. How's, uh, how's life? How's everything going? Everything's good. Yeah, I was... Um, I was led through a certain little meandering escapade this morning in thinking about just a parent thing. Moms and dads out there will be able to speak to this. Like, how do you, when it comes to raising kids, how do you like lead a horse to, to water, you know? And I'm, what I'm thinking about is this, as far as your kids' talents, but also nurturing an interest in some, pursuing some sort of passion. I might have mentioned this before on the show, like my daughter, our oldest, Lilia, your niece, is really passionate about dancing, right? She does dance four days a week. I think it's six classes a week, including Saturdays. She's in a competitive dance troupe, so they travel. She's really into it and she's all about it. But my son, our son, Graydon, he's 11. He hasn't really found like that passion. It probably would be Fortnite. <laughs> If we would just let him run with that. But he's so, I know I've talked to you about this before, Kyle. Like he's so good at music. And what I'm thinking about is there's this piece of music that I really love. I don't know if I ever mentioned to you before. It's a classical piece of music 
called Claire de Lune. It's like a classic composition by, I believe he was a French composer in the late 1800s. So like he started um, arranging this piece of music, I think in 1890. And I think it was finally published in like 19, the early 1900s, like 1905. It's just a beautiful piece of music. It's very unique because I find it to be very melancholy, but at the same time, sort of optimistic and uplifting. I can't think of too many things like that that kind of wear both hats that way. Mm. And I was <laughs> introduced, very Dagon-esque, in my introduction to this piece of music, not in any sort of cultured sort of way, but through a very pop culture sort of way. This piece of music is actually in the Ocean's Eleven movie, the modern Ocean's Eleven franchise. The first one, I believe it's the first one, at the end where the Eleven, you know, conspirators successfully completed their mission and they're in Vegas and they're hanging around the Bellagio fountain that night and they're just kind of looking out into the fountain and not saying anything. They're just kind of standing shoulder to shoulder, reflecting on like a job well done, reflecting on their success. And then one by one, they sort of tear off and just kind of walk into the Vegas night you know, until there's only a couple guys left. And it's set to this piece of music, which I love. And it's kind of a cool, I love those movies. I think they're so charming and like really cool tale about friendship and just good guys, you know, charismatic dudes. I love that piece of music. So I play it a lot while I'm working. So Graydon must have heard that. And the other day, this was probably a few weeks ago, I hear downstairs on the piano, he's plucking away at the keys and he's playing Claire de Lune just by ear and he's kind of trying to figure it out now i'm not playing it at the time i'm listening to whatever i'm listening to joe rogan or something in my studio and i'm hearing him do it and i'm listening i don't want to say anything because i don't want to i don't want him to stop so i'm just kind of listening my ears are pricked and i'm realizing like jesus christ like this kid could play now he's not playing it like mozart okay but he's 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 kind of finding his way through it you know he's figuring it out he's hitting some of the wrong keys some of the wrong notes and everything but he's kind of playing through it and i'm realizing jesus christ like this kid could play things by ear like that's a real talent for me musical talent is so foreign to what any kind of talents that i may have that's the last one that's all the way down down you know down the ladder for me so i'm just thinking like how do we sort of impart some sort of passion for music. Now, he took violin last year. He didn't really dig it. We're trying to encourage him now to play an instrument, and he sort of took a shine to the trombone for some reason, kind of out of the blue. I just think he thinks it looks cool. Maybe it's a little offbeat or something. But he's also got this, he's got like fall allergies and fall asthma. So not the best instrument to be mm. playing like tuba, mm. trombone, like sure. not even the reed instruments, which would be a little easier, like the sax or something. Like I, I think he would struggle with that a little bit. So I'm just wondering, like, how do I, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you're going to be passionate or you're going to pursue it in any real way. But how can I kind of encourage it without, you know, the typical kid thing of them digging their heels in and pushing back? Or, you know, I always found that with skateboarding, like I never really pushed it on my kids because... I didn't want that the thing to happen where they sort of just go against the grain just to be rebellious, which I think is inherently just s- sort of a humanistic thing, not just a kid thing. You know, it's like, oh, they want me to do this. I'm going to do the opposite, you know, type of thing. So not to push too hard or to press, but just to kind of introduce it, put it out there, you know, see if they'll be drawn, see if you could put the little stick and carrot out there and see if they could be drawn to it in any real way. 
But I was thinking about that because of the piece of music in the movie that we're going to talk about today. I won't ruin it yet, but the piece of music that Fight Club ends with, which of course we're going to get to, it's an iconic piece of music. And hearing some piano arrangements of that, I want to see if Graydon could tackle that by ear. Mm. And again, we'll talk about that piece of music in a little while. So that's what's on my mind. As I was writing notes for the movie this morning, I was listening to the Pixies and I was thinking it brought me to Claire de Lune and it brought me to, uh, you know, like, how do I make, Graydon's got some musical talent. Like, I wonder if that's going to develop in any real way or if that'll just be a hobby or if that'll just be kind of left on the sideline as he pursues something else as he gets older. You know, he's a preteen now. So I'm wondering, maybe I need the help of family musicians like yourself to sort of push it. Sure. Yeah, I think we can assist you in this in the endeavor, Dig, because um, I don't know. I don't know like what, what his temperament would be on this, but he might understand that he has some sort of natural inclination towards piano. And you might be able to drag something out of him where you can say, like, we'll invest in lessons so you are better at it. Like, right. you understand right. it more. I, maybe you can appeal to him in that in that specific way. I took drum lessons and I didn't like them very much. The guy was really nice. I took them for like two or three years and it taught me how to read. I actually already knew how to read music because I played saxophone, but reading drum music is a little different. It's actually sure. way easier. So um, so I, I that kind of instilled that in me and rudiments and all of that. And it's important, but I learned most of playing drums by playing the drums. And he might be a similar thing. By the way, piano and drums are very, are highly related instruments. That's um, interesting they're both, here. I they're both know, percussive. I think that. Yeah, piano is really a percussive instrument. So, um, you know, you know, and you're yeah, like, you're sense. hitting it sure. and it's like, it's, and it's a rhythmic instrument. It's right, like bass. right. Um, you can obviously do much more with it than that. But when you think about piano in a rock song, you think about Ben Folds 5 or something like oh, that. I mean, that's a rhythm instrument. So you might be able to get him to, uh, like, he might, I always wish I took piano more seriously because I took piano lessons for a year as well. And, um, oh, I didn't know that. I, I, in sixth grade or okay. fifth grade. And um, I I wish I could have been like Colin, dumb, dumb Colin. When you're 20 or 25, you'll be able to sit down at any piano and just impress anyone you want. That's a great If you point. just, if you just, like, there's just little things where you wish you can go back and be like, this sucks if you don't want to sit here and learn this, this shit, but you'll sure. be able to impress women one day with it or you'll be able to like be the, you know, stand a piano at the party. And, that is the know, instrument do. in a lot of rooms. Right. Right. So, so like I, that, so that, that's kind of like another maybe angle to it. Maybe you that's know, what it is. Just get him getting older. Not only the, the cool uncle introducing or talking, like saying, playing it up instead of the dad, the nerdy dad, but also like when he gets old enough to like acknowledge Ben Folds is cool. Elton John, Billy that's Joel, what I was gonna say. Like whoever, of, right. You know? Think about all the great rocking piano guys. They're, a lot of you know even even Liberace and others like they're they're uh, they're in front they're playing hard they're sure. the center of the band yeah yeah big big difference between a keyboardist and Billy Joel big difference between you know a background artist and Ben Folds you know or whatever so Good point but the girl <sighs> angle is also yeah. that might I mean, also he's help not he's like not quite there yet years. but that's a huge that's a huge angle that's huge I mean and. I wasn't there at that time either when I, I didn't know any better. Drums were obviously even better for that. But um, oh, my God, girls love drummers. But and I learned that really quick. I don't really know why. Any musician, I feel like. Yeah, you know, I totally yeah. lost out on any kind of chance of having that. Allure. And it's cool. I mean, I taught myself <laughs> how to play guitar and bass. Yeah. So he might be he might be picking up. I'm not I'm not great. I'm much better at bass than I am guitar, but I, he might be. 
I play bass with a pick, by the way. It's a lot, bothers a lot of people. But um, even though lots of basses play with a pick. Sure. But yeah, so maybe he's just got that natural inclination. Well, he'll just travel around these various instruments and what some things might be available to him. And he might just be like, this is the this is the instrument that I want to play. I mean, That's what's cool be about f- it. It would, it would be fun to see him play drums. Yeah, that would be cool. I've been trying Not to for encourage you. that a little bit. And my <laughs> somehow Helene's parents got hold of a drum set, maybe from a friend of theirs who was moving. This was like five years ago. And at the time, we were like, we don't really have room for it. Where are we going to put it, you know? Now I kind of regret it a little bit. If we should have just maybe took it, you know, taken it and put it in storage until he was ready. This way, you know, it's just another thing. He has, like you said, he has that musical inclination. So you could apply it a lot of different ways. It's kind of different than any other talent subset in that way. It's not like if you could draw, you could paint, stuff stuff like that. Like musical talent is musical talent. And then you kind of kind of apply it how you choose or maybe even alter it and change it and adapt it and evolve it as you you know, as you grow. So who knows? Maybe I'll have you speak to him. See if you could uh, get the bug in him a little bit. Yeah, that would be fun. Music's a wonderful thing. And I think also once he learns, he might already inherently know this, but once, once he learns composition in terms of, and it's not just classical composition, but once he learns what the contributions of every instrument is in a piece, then maybe he'll also be able to find what he's most attracted to. I I remember very clearly mom talking about how much she loved bass in like i was in like fourth grade i think and i remember telling her at the time we were listening to music in the car i'm like i don't yeah. even hear the bass like i don't even know what you're talking about i remember there being a moment where i'm like what is the bass i don't i don't even hear it and then you start picking up the rhythm and then that's like so in front and center for me that you notice like in princes when doves cry there's no bass line in that song peculiar which is peculiar and you and you notice that but when i was a kid i would have never noticed that so he might also want to deconstruct things as he moves forward and figure out what the most appealing part of a song is. To sure. Him as well. Yeah. It gives you know? it more depth when you think about it that way and you could break it down and you have a little knowledge of what you're hearing. Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. What about you, my friend? What's going on this week? Uh, nothing much. Uh, very busy. Dad was here. Um, how'd that go? It was good. It was good to see him. Ramon was here like a little bit before, just before that. that best yeah. Friend. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so we, we just, yeah, just very busy. A lot of things to do. Games coming out um tasks to handle i I haven't really been yeah otherwise haven't really been dealing with too much out out of the ordinary really watching a lot of youtube i think i've I've been saying this in the in recently but youtube is completely extraordinary i I actually think i I, the more i delve into it the more i'm like this is this is insane how much shit is here but i'm finding myself getting annoyed when i find like a great youtuber and then i'm like done Yes. with their stuff and i'm like you son of a bitch like you almost get i almost understand like what people get mad at me where it's like i want more and right it's like, oh my god yeah. leave me alone and I, I found this guy well a long time ago in 2019 i started watching lgr do you know him the lazy game reviews yes yep big fan of that guy i just i'm really attracted to like these pc old school pc stuff i've always been really attracted to that like old silicon valley stuff and so i've kind of like gone through all his stuff and then i found this guy the 8-bit guy who's in texas and he's awesome too okay, and so i've been i know that one but it's all again like Commodore, you know, Spectrum, all that interesting Old stuff. PC. Right. Things yeah. that I don't know. I have no interest in watching things about things I grew up with. Like I don't care. Like I remember, you know, I see like gaming historians, Super Mario Three, I'm like, I was there. I don't You're need to right, see that. Right, I, right, I, right. I would rather yeah, like I remember. You know, I remember very well. So that not that there's anything wrong with that either, but I, I just the the and then the eclectic nature of the algorithm and how it really does get to know you very well and how completely schizophrenic 
YouTube must think I am. It's like offering me like, oh, you want you want a guy countering a scammer in India? Okay, here's a fight video of two Karens and a Taco Bell, and here's a video about lawn mowing and then here's a video about of a guy clearing a drain and then here's a video you know it's and and it's just all this shit here's tim cast and rogan clips and an nfl thing and it's like hysterical yeah i don't understand and the weirdest thing happened to me actually when dad was here not it wasn't youtube it's spotify okay but i was talking ali and i were like we're all sitting you haven't been to my house but there's like a huge island in the kitchen we were all just like standing around it and on my TV was just like a random playlist playing and Allie and I were talking about, I was like, Hey, we were talking about tool, the band tool. Okay. And I was like, Oh man, I really love tool. Do you know this, that, that big song sober? You might like that song a good, good way in. And then I shit you not. The song came on next on the playlist. So, and I have like a 10,000 song playlist. Like okay. literally I have like a master playlist. I just dump everything into the same playlist. And I thought that was kind of weird. Too. That's so, creepy. Yeah. So it's, these things are getting smart. It's convenient. Oh, it's so smart. But also quite eerie as well. So that's what's been on my mind. You know, and that the fact that that algorithm or whoever they're curating that could keep up with your very eclectic, specifically your very eclectic taste and like the amount of variety of things that you like to watch and listen to. It's pretty crazy how perceptive that is. Yeah, it's awesome. You know, very and, and also how it, also how it sneaks things you've forgotten back in. It's like, oh, yeah, watch this guy in a while. That's another yeah. thing. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, how did you know? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously you, you could... would know, but how do you know that that makes sense? That's a great point. Yeah, it's very. Complex. Yeah, you could get off on like five rabbit holes for a couple of weeks where you're very specifically into like four or five or six different channels, forgetting something that you were previously really engaged with, and then yeah, they'll kind of put it back into the rotation for you, which is good for I think good for the YouTuber or the YouTube channel that kind of fell off your radar. But also just creepy, you know yes. how it kicks things back up to the surface, and it really is kind of dictating in a way what you're consuming that day too. Like, how much autonomy do you? Re- I mean, you have ultimate autonomy, but the things that it's putting on your, you know, in your immediate grasp, has some part in what you're, you know, engaging with that day, what you're watching or listening to, which is really. You know, it gets very big brotherish in a way. Yeah, you know, definitely. super sci-fi. <laughs> you know, indeed, indeed. <gasps> Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you. You watch them do it the right way, and you go, "Thank God I didn't try to do that myself." <laughs> I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. 
or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Dig, let's, let's get into the topic this. at hand. This is one that the audience voted for, and it's Fight Club, the 1999 film. Very nice. And uh, I just started 10th grade, I remember, when this came out uh, mm. from David Fincher, the director. We'll get into him. Starring Brad Pitt, Ed Norton, as well as Helena Bonham Carter, Jared Leto from 30 Seconds to Mars. Excellent. To see him in this, I totally forgot. And... Uh, of course, Meatloaf's in here as well. Although I didn't make that connection until the end. I was like, I got it. That guy looks familiar. <laughs> so, Dig, we have a bunch of letters here from the audience. The audience voted on this topic. Remember, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media. Early ad-free access to every episode of the show. The ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show. Submit topic ideas. Vote on other topic ideas. This is one of those ideas. And Ben Williams wrote in and said, you shouldn't be talking about Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Good point. <laughs> But uh, James Solar wrote in and said, Colin and Dagan, I was a I work as a middle manager in food service and we hire lots of teenagers and college students. In mid-2007, I hired a high schooler named Tyler. The movie Fight Club came up and 17-year-old Tyler said something that made me feel 100 years old. He said, I was named after Tyler Durden. It broke my brain that this near-grown adult child was born after the movie Fight Club came out. I'm now sharing this with you so that I feel as, that you feel as old as I did on that day. Enjoy. What kind of awesome parents did that kid have? Yeah, it's That's interesting, too, because I don't know that Tyler turned someone you want to name yourself after, but <laughs> but nonetheless, this is a movie I haven't seen in a long time or hadn't seen in a long time. I don't know when the last time I saw it is. I saw it in the theater because, as we said, in that time, I was seeing we just go to the movie theater constantly. So obviously, Fight Club is one of those movies. And then I had it on DVD. But what I remember about it, because there's this actually this Limp Bizkit line where he says, I think it's on Chocolate Starfish. So two thousand. When he says, I've seen Fight Club about 48 times, I think is something he said. And I remember that because that really was a thing at that moment. People were obsessed with this movie. And I remember kind of being turned off by it because I was like, I don't like it. It kind of reminded me at the same pretty much the same time. The Matrix. Yeah. It's like, all right, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this is boring and and lame. And it's a great movie, but I don't need to celebrate it quite like this. Of course, Fight Club is based on a book. By Chuck Pal, how do you say this? Paladin. That's what I was going to ask. He was Palani? on Rogan, and I, I I must have just been watching clips rather than the whole show. So I was really trying to see how. I have no idea. I think it's Palaniac, <laughs> but he's an author, and he wrote this novel in '96, um, and the movie is based on it. Sure. And um, I never read the book. This is not about the book. But I'm wondering, take what your familiarity with is with this movie, or was with this movie, and what your early remembrances of it were, and. If you shared something similar to me, you were obviously much older. You were an adult when this came out, but yeah. I don't remember taking anything away from this movie as a kid that it's actually about. And as so watching it as an adult, I'm like, oh, this movie's actually <laughs> a really great commentary, and I sure. didn't get it. 
And we've talked about that so many times in movies where I'm like, I just didn't understand this as a kid. I did not understand the meta level. And what's so funny about Fight Club and I think what's so vacant about a lot of its fandom for people my age at that time was like no one understood. No, like none of my friends, my contemporaries were watching Fight Club because they understood the existential nature of Ed Norton's struggle. At least I don't think so. And I don't think I, I understood that. So it was fun to watch it again. Remember a lot of the scenes, see a bunch of things that I didn't remember, especially at the end. I think the movie's too long. I think it drags. Okay, that's interesting. I think it's stays around 20 minutes too long all right clean two hours i think would have been better but other than that I, I was really happy with it and i know people really hold this movie in high esteem they do and i understand why I, I i think it's really wonderful so um what what do you have to say about fight club as we begin you know it's funny that happens to me a lot with the show and i think that's one of the nicest things about doing knockback is like you could get a new context just by revisiting something so I totally hear you. And that really does make sense, especially for the age that you were in 99 when this movie came out in the fall that year. But yeah, for me, there's a lot to say about this film. I like the way, first of all, that this has been on the list for a long time and it's sort of dovetailed with something that the audience picked. So something that we all want to talk about seemingly, which is fun. Yeah, that was, by the way, that's good because that's just payback for you picking things that take us 7,000 hours. Owned. That's true. Got you back. We were going to do this episode anyway. Owned. <laughs> Owned. We got you. Busted. You got jokes on you guys. <laughs> but it is an interesting movie for a lot of reasons. I think it's a fun movie. I think it does have that sort of blockbuster popcorn movie patina, which applies to your generation. You know, seeing it in the middle of high school. Just a fun movie to watch, you know, about guys fighting each other, this underground fight club. But I think it's one of those kind of cool movies that's. That is a fun watch, both contemporarily and historically, but it also does have something to say. And I like that it is ironic that, you know, just doing the show, we're breaking the first two rules, which is Mm -hmm. hilarious. And something that strikes me is that this film, you know, the book and then David Fincher's adaptation of the book is really aimed directly at my generation. It's a commentary aimed directly at Gen Xers. And very timely for me personally, if we look back at the context of 1999, because I was fresh out of college and off on my own, living in the first place post-college, post-college dorm or college apartment, you know, my first place in the real world, my first real job up in Connecticut at an animation studio up there. And the first place I lived that was completely disassociated with college. So I was going through this you know, I was new to the throes of that young professional thing, positive or negative. And, you know, for me, looking back at the movie again and watching it a couple of more times, a movie that makes you feel, at least for me, makes me feel like it makes me look inward a little bit still, even though the movie is over 20 years old now, you know, it makes me look inward a little bit. And, you know, it's that fun, stylish popcorn flick coupled with this maybe tongue-in-cheek and maybe not so tongue-in-cheek message from this writer and from this director and also some great performances by a relatively small cast. So kind of easy to talk about. And you know what? The, the last thing that's cool about this movie, so many times, obviously, and rightly so, we talk about nerd culture or pop culture franchises on the show. Star Wars, Star Trek, indie, Ghostbusters, a cartoon series, whatever it is. This is a sort of something 
that's important in the pop culture lens that's really a one-off, of course, based on the book, so you could kind of couple it, but really kind of a one-off discussion. It's not a franchise. It's a piece of content or a film. I hate referring to things as content. Actually, I got to stop. Yeah, doing I that. do too. I hate that. I hate that term. I use it, but I hate. I do but hate a pe- say say a piece of art, a piece sure. of modern art that's really beholden only unto itself. You know, there's nothing else to really judge it up against. You have that one piece of content, and then it's sort of moved on. You know, we could talk about the directors and their body of the director and his body of work, or the actors and their body of work. But as a film, as one piece of art, it's really just a, a singular conversation, and I think that could be pretty fun. And something that we don't do quite as much on Knockback. So that could be kind of refreshing, I think. I agree. And it's it was strange when I was reading a little bit about it that they did follow it up much more recently, like the last couple of years with these random like visual novels that I don't yeah. really... I, that I feel like... It reminds me a lot of Jericho, which also ended that way. And that doesn't really feel real to me. No offense. So I agree with you where it's just this one-off thing. It's, I, I just... I hate non-sequential weird spin-off shit where it's like i wrote a book and it became a movie and now it's a graphic novel it's like all right man yeah and just write a fucking other book with that much time where that much time has elapsed i think is a weird look i'm automatically suspect of that you know you're just like cashing in on a name or or you know (laughs) this is kind of a weird thing to be upset about especially for the nature of our show but cashing in on nostalgia you know what i mean where (laughs) maybe i shouldn't that's a little maybe a little cold for that one yeah but you know where it's this feels like just do something new like you already have talent create a different world you know it's easy to dunk on yourself like that but at the same time it's different you're it is crea- different. It, you're, it's commentary because it's it would basically be akin to saying the news needs to talk about unique things it's like no the news covers events and right, our exactly. show covers the Whatever past but but at some point at some embryonic state is the creation of the what is being covered and that is not our job so it is easy to say that there's a contradiction there, but it, it's clearly not a contradiction. Sure. I wanted to well, ask sorry. you this, I guess this broad question, because we were talking about what it's about. What is this book of this movie about? Because mm. mm. I, I agree with you. It obviously is aimed at Generation X, and I feel like the Baby Boomers and Gen X are two of the most interesting groups, I think. Obviously, Gen X is the kid are the kids of baby boomers but there's something there's something about these two generational th- these two groups that don't that was like the the most unbalanced i think in american history of of change and self-examination and i think we've benefited like millennial i'm a millennial i don't know how that's possible but i am a millennial i was born in 1984 so technically i'm a millennial <laughs> you are oh you certainly are 1982 i think is when that begins Okay. Although okay. we were, although when I was a kid, we said this before. I was, we were called Generation Y for a little while. I didn't really understand that either. But so I'm a millennial, and I think we've benefited, and certainly those after me have benefited from a lot of this introspection about things. And I found the very beginning of the film to be quite powerful because there's that scene where you know this out of control capitalism being portrayed as an IKEA catalog, basically. And I was. I think this was lost on me as a kid too because I never went to Ikea. I actually don't even remember there being an Ikea on Long Island, but I wasn't, mm. I didn't go to Ikea until 2007 when I went, moved to California. I oh, went to wow. Oakland. So I think it, what was funny to me about that too was that, like, wow, nothing has changed. Like, nothing at all has changed. And uh, we'll get into that a little later from a question that we have from the audience. But what do you think at the top level this movie is trying to say? Yeah, I think it's really 
an interesting dichotomy, this movie, because I I know a lot of people say like it's a comment on Gen X and Generation X was the first generation raised on television, which I tend to agree disagree with. I think the baby boomers were the first generation raised on TV. You know, mm-hmm. our, our parents were born in 1950 specifically, not to blow you guys up, but largely by 1950, everyone had a TV in their living room, if not by certainly the early 50s. So that was really the first generation raised with that sort of TV in the living room culture. I think you could argue that Gen X, you know, with the television and with TV culture and being raised on shows and movies, I think we probably took it to the next level from the baby boomers. I mean, there was this more content with cable TV and VHS and all that kind of stuff. But I'm sort of hesitant to call this movie anti-consumerism or anti-capitalism or anti-advertising because I think those themes certainly play in But I think it's more of, for me, in watching it a few times now, all told, maybe trying to find some sort of balance in between, you know, what you would say is like the discontented young professional trying to fill their emotional gaps with stuff, materialism, versus just kind of hearkening back to a more primal self-indulgent you know kind of catering to our base needs way of life you know and where do we find the middle ground in that sort of thing but it does it it did like this film did touch a chord in my generation like when i was working up at funny bone interactive my first animation studio at a school my first animation job i worked with guys you know a lot of gen xers some were a few years older than me Somewhere might have been a year or two younger than me. But I saw this film strike a chord in people, whether they had just seen it and responded to it and, discuss, you know, having discussions, uh, you know, while we were smoking cigarettes outside, or people that were like all in that would like watch it every week once it got released on VHS or early DVD. And so I know that this film really kind of touched something in that group of people, guys and girls. And that, you know, it was probably the first time we had seen a manifesto like that on screen and kind of under the guise, again, of like this popcorn-y blockbuster type action flick. You know, it wears that kind of disguise, but then underneath you have this other content of making these comments about society and the way things seem to be going at that time. Also very ironic for a guy like David Fincher because he's known for his music videos and commercials and starting back in animation with a a career in ILM and stuff like that. So very much in the throws of that, even though he's an older guy. He worked on on Return of the Jedi. Worked on Jedi. I I found out. And Temple of Doom. And Temple of Doom. Which which is is crazy. favorite indie movie. A never-ending story. Like, you know, the things we, the pieces of pop culture that Gen X grew up with. So it's a very interesting conversation and I think carried through from a lot of the things carried over from the book. I would say things improved from the book. I listened to the audio book, so I kind of got a kind of got a feel for the source content and the performances. But I would say really it's at the center of it's about a discontented young professional sort of running on the hamster wheel of being early in his career, being a young a young uh white collar worker who feels deeply unsatisfied and unfulfilled at 
his core and he's suffering from a depression due to what I would deem is sort of a profound feeling that his life lacks substance, you know, just filling it in with the right pair of khakis and furnishing your apartment with all this crap and buying things and materialism and responding to advertising and kind of being the fall guy for, you know, consumerism, basically capitalism. And, you know, he's afflicted with, with this numbness despite those material possessions just feeling like something deeply primal is missing. And um, I think that does, I think that does register with me a little bit. Like I understand what the fight club, even though I'm not a violent dude, I'm not really like down for like graphic violence or fighting. And I'm a kind of a peacenik. I could definitely speak to that thing of my generation kind of losing ourselves or losing that, that those primal base instincts or just those, those things that maybe, you know, some people would might say like you maybe Gen X, it was getting to be too preoccupied with stuff and maybe they were getting a bit soft, right? Like, and maybe that was being raised by hippies. Who knows? But I'm going off on a tangent, <laughs> but I would start, I would start there with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, well, first, uh, before I forget to say, talk about David Fincher, I'm always so attracted because I don't know anything about film, as we say over and over again. I'm learning as we do the show, and you know, I watch movies like everyone else, but I don't know anything about the art of making films. And so when I go and investigate a director, I'm like, I, you know, I know this name. Who, who is this person? And I, I'm always impressed when a, when a director, especially someone who, and this, you know, he's old. I mean, older. Yeah. yeah is yeah. uh when they have a very limited filmography because it makes me feel it's what we were talking about with DiCaprio where it makes you feel like wow this guy is laser focused on exactly what is right and when I was looking at the movies that he directed he's directed like only 10 movies yeah not and a lot Alien 3 which we'll yeah, get to at some point he's known for but but then 7 is an awesome movie so also good. starring Brad Pitt really good movie Iconic. the game which I haven't seen in a long time but is also a good movie Great and movie. I feel like is a movie it's kind of like squid game actually that new that new thing yes. that's on from south korea it's actually kind of like it's about like a meta game that's in, that's injected in this person have you life. started that yet no i derek me told either. me when i saw our brother-in-law he's like he's like you're gonna love this shit. yeah lilia loves it and then fight club and then he did panic room which i saw in the theater as well and that was fine zodiac which is a very good movie oh it's chilling that's a that's social, a chilling movie yeah it is the social network i never saw but it uh very well regarded good movie based on the famous book and then I didn't realize he did this. He did Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is very well regarded. I didn't see that either, but he did Gone Girl. Yeah. And I got to say, I didn't read the book. That movie was fucking awesome. Oh, my God. And, Big and I'll never forget. It was it was a few days. I, it was late 2014. We were about to leave IGN. We already left IGN, but no one knew yet. And I was with Cheryl at the time, and we had just we were watching a bunch of movies that break. And I was just kind of like laying low. And I remember back to back to back. These are the movies that I saw, right? Inter for the first time, Interstellar, right? And then I saw Wolf of Wall Street, and then I saw Gone Girl. Wow. And I was like, oh my God. It actually like it actually resonated in my mind for a little while where I started watching more movies for a little while. I was like, holy shit. These movies are and I would I would argue that Wolf of Wall Street is one of the is top twenty five for me for sure. Interstellar wow. is top five for me. It's a so, good trifecta, either way. Yeah, so I just wanted to throw that out there real quick as an as an aside about about David Fincher. I'm just really attracted to people that do that kind of stuff. Plus, he directed a little bit of House of Cards, which was excellent. And yeah, that's right. Prolific music video director. Yes. And um, 
He actually ended, he actually did one of his last music videos was the song Judith by A Perfect Circle, which is an, a really awesome video. And I you love that video because I always love videos that are that show the band playing. I, I feel like that's an essential part of a music video. I hate when music videos don't show the band playing, but you can make it into something more. And I think he really does that there. So I just wanted to give him a shout out on that. Front. Watch that. As far as the, the plot is concerned and like what the, the show, the, the movie's about. It makes me in an anthropological way curious about how far back this feeling of death of of separation and despair goes back. How far does it go back? This this need of fulfillment. And I suspect it goes as far back as people starting to spin off from society to do things that were not necessary to core survival. I think once people, so like animal husbandry and agriculture. So let's say like 10,000 years ago okay, is when people started having problems where they're like, Oh man, I'm, I'm not like being chased by bears anymore. We're going to still die if we don't farm and get our food and stuff. But now we have like a, we have a mystic and we're looking at the stars and something wells up in a person, I think. And, that, and that's where humanity I think spawns from. And this this movie made me curious about and it's an unanswerable question, by the way, which is why anthropology is so fucking obnoxious. It's hard. Which is. What were how long did this go on? Because I, I think one of the things about Generation X, which I find obnoxious. Is that they do. And I'm not saying you. No, no, but no. They the the, <laughs> the, the gen, gen the proud Gen Xers have often looked at themselves like we're a Generation X. We're the best. Everything that we've experienced is unique. And and, all, and I'm like, I don't know, man, like. I actually think in some way Generation X is the first generation that didn't have to worry about as much as their as previous generations. It's another one of those quantum leaps. And so I feel like we it's what I said earlier, where we have a lot to thank for that reflection that that generation that your generation had done, as I said. But I also feel like it's not necessarily so unique. And I think seeing that Ikea thing at the beginning, I was like, what? Everyone must feel like this. And everyone's married to something he was married to the to the ikea furniture and like the just needing things and it's so funny by the way he's on the phone calling them the order oh, so it's, it's so it's so quaint but people feel that way about video games or toys sure. or cars or women or whatever you know like and so i think fight club resonates with people because it is incredibly accessible because you can graft yourself onto onto these characters or this character really and understand that there's a schizophrenia in all of us that there's unanswered questions the unanswered bell in all of our minds the roads untraveled the choices not taken i say constantly on sacred symbols when we talk about game development that an opportunity taken is infinite opportunities lost and it's true so it brings in a lot of unique perspective on the human condition and i really think i related it to it a lot especially through ed norton the narrator he's experiencing his problems through sleeplessness and i can relate to that a lot of people experience things in different ways but when something is off and i think he says something really profound about insomnia and how um you know like everything becomes slow motion and like you're detached, like one level removed. And I, I related to that as well because I have a hard time sleeping. I think it's at the core of my psychiatric problems. And when I am able to 
tackle that, I feel so much better. So I kind of felt him living out this experience. I'm like, oh, I, I get it, man. I mean, I'm not in an office. Ex- I'm not in an office environment scanning shit and whatever, but we all <laughs> right. we all go through our own issues. So so I really I like what you had to say about it. And I, I, I relatively agree that I think that the movie. I'm, I'm with you where I'm a nonviolent pacifist. I wasn't when this movie came out. I was much more neoconservative at that time, although I didn't know what the hell I was talking about when I was in 10th grade. But it, it, it has nothing to do with that. Because I actually think the fighting is just. It could be anything. It could be like Fight Club. It could be basketball. club. It really doesn't matter because the dudes are just trying to do anything to feel. Yes. And to break. Great point. And to break the the monotony and the wink and a nod stuff, I think, becomes a little too much as the movie goes on. And I think that the movie stays the story, I guess, because it's in the book stays stays around too long. And kind of starts to undo itself and becomes a little too meta and weird. Yeah. Yeah, I could you could say that. I will also say this real quick before I throw it back to you, which is. I didn't realize and I don't want to spoil it, although I don't think it is spoiling Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot is about like the same thing Mm. that Fight Club's about, which I didn't realize. Like I have only seen the first season of Mr. Robot. I like that show. Okay, but that show is about going after the financial institutions and trying to erase debt. Like, that's what the show is about. I've only seen or at least that's what it was about when okay. I was watching it. Was that okay. like they're literally not trying to hack the companies. They're trying to get into and destroy their main their, their mainframes where everything is backed up. OK, because like they're like, you can wipe it all out and then they'll just go back to their their backups. But what if you just erased all evidence of debt? Right. Like, that's what Mr. Robot's about. That's is that and is that series still running now? I don't think so. Over? OK, I think it's over. OK. And it was really good. So it's about how hackers are like coming together to try to like take to down the that. financial industry. OK. And. This is like a much more brute force version of that. And I, I, I didn't realize that. And I was wondering, I haven't read about it, but I, want, I wonder if they were inspired by this because it, it seemed a little strange. And you know what else I want to say about this? And, and I'm curious what you think of this is this movie has serious DC Comics vibes. You, I almost feel like you're watching, you know, like the Joker, like Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, where it's not really a DC movie, but it is a DC yeah, movie. Sure, I, sure. I feel like that where it, you almost feel like you're in Gotham. That's interesting. And like, and these are like Batman villains. That's, that's right? really like, like, interesting. There's a guy that's like schizophrenic and his other side does all these crimes, which he doesn't remember and stuff. And so I couldn't escape from that comic book-esque kind of thing too. Plus Jared makes, Leto, right? Jared Leto's of course, Right. Which is exactly, and which is why it's, which is kind of funny as well. But <laughs> Dave, what do, let's get into some of these performances you had said, and you had mentioned, I mean, there really are only... And actually, I'm looking at Wikipedia now. There really are only six characters of any yeah. consequence. And I would argue really five because I really don't consider Angel Face as really being a no. relevant character. No. But you have the narrator that's Norton and Tyler as Brad, one in the same. And then you have Helena Bonham Carter as Marla and Meatloaf as Bob. And then Zach Reiner as Richard Chesler, who I think is a relevant character, too. Sure. So I would I would argue that there are five characters. We can get into Angel Face. I don't really think it's necessary, but... We actually have an interesting question about Brad Pitt's inclusion specifically. Okay. And um, I wanted to know what you think about what James has to say. James Ketchum. He says, hi, bros, Moriarty. I was in college when this movie came out and remember being excited because I had the book and knew what I was in for. My buddies ragged on me so hard because Brad Pitt was in it. And they were like, Brad Pitt is not Tyler Durden. My counterpoint was Tyler is the pinnacle of this guy's id and ego. Of course, it's Brad Pitt. That's the commentary. In Tyler's own words, I look like you want to look. I fuck like you want to fuck. I thought Brad was the ultimate star to play this part because it held up a mirror to my own insecurities and who I thought I wanted to be. And then, of course, the film smashed all that. 
And that was the point. Does Brad's inclusion at the height of his power add to or take away from this film for you? This is a great question because great Brad question. Pitt was great, great observation. I, I agree with him completely. And I think that that casting is obvious that you are going after the perfect man. And Brad Pitt, people still look at him like that. But in 1999, Brad Pitt was peak. Peak Doesn't get man, much more handsome, than right, this dude? Right. When you think about you think about Leo now and and other guys and even others now, I mean that was the man. Brad Pitt oh, was God. the man. I oh. I don't know if younger people realize that. I think they probably do, but Brad Pitt was the man. And I realized that I don't think I made that connection when I was a kid. I don't think I ever thought one minute about who was cast for what right. reasons. But I think now, of course, yeah, you know, of course. Brad Pitt, who else would it be? Who else? And who so, so how do you feel about his, about his performance and about this it and ego fight between the narrator and, and Tyler? Yeah. And, I mean, and, yeah. Who do you cast, first of all, for good looks? But not only that, like you have that Brad Pitt flavor of, you know, that lighthearted but still somehow substantive machismo. You know, he just has that. You know, he has that swagger. But it's appealing. Like, you want to be like him. You want to be friends with him. I feel like he definitely gives that off in the film. You want to be, you know, you want, you want this guy to be in your circle. He's too cool for school, but you're drawn to him. You know, he's got that bravado. And then that just goes along with, you know, he's, he's muscular. He's got the perfect physique. He's boyishly handsome. He's, he's, like, got the perfect bronze tan. Like, everything down, you know, he's got the carefree attitude, it seems like he's not trying, but he's still getting everything he wants. He's completely satisfied. Like he's that side of this. He's that fifty percent, and you know the unsatisfied, sort of seemingly depressed, sleepless, completely unfulfilled. Ed Norton is the other fifty percent. You know, so it's a it's a really cool dynamic contrast. What's cool for me about Brad Pitt, and I love him, and we've talked about him on the show. We did um, Inglorious Bastards. And we'll talk about other things. Nazis. But he would go Nazis. on. What'd you say? Killing Nazis. Killing yep. Nazis. And you know what's <laughs> funny? Look at that very dynamic, cartoony almost performance in that film. And he still has that very similar flavor, even though it's a very different role playing Tyler. In Fight Club, he still has that, you know, that through line, that Brad Pittness that just makes him so unique. Compared to everybody else, he has that really unique quality to him. But he would go on to do two of my favorite things that he's ever done in the next two years. He would do Snatch for Guy mm. Ritchie in 2000. Wow. And then 2001, he would do what I was talking about the opening of the show, the first Ocean's Eleven remake. And he's so good in those. But, you know, we already had him in like, he played Floyd in True Romance. We had him in Cool World, Interview with a Vampire, of course. Of course. Legends you of the that Fall, that's a great, and you that's a great had movie. mentioned Seven already. Right. He was already having that collaboration. That um, we got to do interview with the vampire. Man. Oh, it's Brad, so good, Brad dude. Pitt and Tom Cruise. Come on, and I think good. are they yeah. playing that free on YouTube right now? They might be on YouTube. Movies oh, nice. or something. It's a great film, great. and you know how I feel about vampires. Oh, and that's a great. I mean, and Rice. What can you say? Like, and that's a great adaptation. But you know, he has. I can't. You know, it's like one of those roles where you can't even imagine somebody else being cast for the role. And interestingly enough, I know he was already kind of, of a, a regular collaborator with Fincher at this point, but I heard a lot of casting, you know, sort of colorful casting stories about almost every other character in this film, but I hadn't heard anything about, 
I think Brad Pitt was like a main get. Like that might have even been the way, you know, part of the way to secure funding for the film. Like it had to be this guy. Not only because he was so hot, physically hot, but box office hot. He was a draw, box office draw. But just because he's so good, man. I mean, how can you, I mean, and even now today, like even up to a few years ago with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like he's such an important component to acting. And not only like you hear about his, you know, off the, off the stage, off the set escapades with his love interests and stuff like that. But just more importantly, he just seems like a raw actor. The craft is really important to him. You know, I, I see him as like a really kind of almost like Tom Hanks-ish in a way, like he's, he's huge. He's the consummate movie star. I mean, he's recognizable everywhere, anywhere you go internationally, but still an artist at the core of that, you know, and you kind of get that through this, through this film. And maybe that was, even though he did a lot of big things leading up, Fight Club might have been the start of that, where you thought, you know, you saw you were getting something. I think Meet Joe Black, for instance, came before this. And that was a good film. Right. And he's very good in it. You know, he plays right. de- he plays the angel of death. But this is just like, I think, maybe realizing like what you're getting with Brad Pitt. Like he was going to be special and he wasn't going anywhere type of thing. Yeah, Meet Joe Black, of course, and we brought this up in the past, significant for Star Wars fans because that was the movie which the Phantom Menace trailer was first attached to. And I always I forget about that. And everyone went and Great saw it and then, just, and then just left, including me. But Claire right. Forlani's in that. That's like my 90s crush. You couldn't have even sold me on staying for that movie. Like I, I was just like, <laughs> I, you know, at that time, I was in ninth grade when that happened. Fair enough. And on the other side, we have Ed Norton. We, we just talked about Ed Norton recently because we did the Hulk and the Incredible Hulk from sure. 2008, which we very much liked. And what's interesting about him is this is actually one of his first films when you really think about it. I think uh, we had brought this up already, but People versus Larry Flint, Rounders, etc. And um, American History X, of course, was the movie before this. But I, I well, I certainly at that time didn't know what I was really getting with Ed Norton. I think we, we understand more now. I think he's one of the great actors of our time. And I really dig his performance. I find it believable. I find it in some way sympathetic because I think we all, again, understand it. But it does come off as a little crazy. And I think he does a nice job, even with the fourth wall breaking stuff. And I and this is where I really want to start getting more into the meta of the of the movie with you, because Eric Pena wrote in Yo, and a Eric. lot of people were curious about this. He says, hello, boyos. Fight Club is authentically one of my top 10 movies of all time. Wow. My question is simple. The first time you saw the film, do you remember if you knew something up was up with Tyler? In other words, did you have an inkling that he and Jack were the same person or were you taken completely by surprise like I was? So I don't remember at all how I felt or what I knew about the movie. What I know is that when I went back to watch it now, I know, and we obviously know this now, and thus I um, I feel like it kind of, it's very much like the Sixth Sense or an M. Night movie where it kind of does ruin it, inside, not ruin it, but it, it, it takes away from it. Fight Club is best seen the first time. Oh, of course. Not knowing what to expect. So it definitely takes away from it. I don't know that I remembered, but I was watching it with an eye towards trying to see it and i think that when you look for it you can yeah i just don't know how obvious it was at that time like uh when they're at the house and marla is there they're never together right they're never all together and on the other hand it's strange because it's like is ed norton ed norton's in the parking lot beating the shit out of himself and doing all these things so it is a little it is a little strange drinking in with himself and dropping a beer bottle and all of this like instead of handing it to a person 
it comes off as both believable and unbelievable. But I'm wondering if you remember how you felt about that. And, and certainly now that you know what, what you took away from it, watching it with that eye. Yeah, it went completely over my head the first time I saw it. I w- it's one of those things where you wish you could go back and say, I saw it very much like The Sixth Sense. That's a perfect comparison. I missed that too. It's interesting too. I never heard anybody say, I haven't met anybody that said they've gotten this on the first try. And the clues are all there. Like it makes me feel a little foolish going back and rewatching because if you're really paying attention, there's definitely something odd going on. There's also something that Fincher does that, there's a lot of convenience in the first, I would say, half of the film where he conveniently shoots things or shows things a certain way where later on the reveals get more obvious as you progress through the film. So you should pick it up at some point, but I don't remember ever picking it up in my first viewing. But, you know, it's it's done pretty well. I mean, there, you know, again, there's a lot of movie magic going on, a lot of convenience and as far as like showing things from certain perspectives. And like you said, Kyle, not showing all three characters in the same shot. A lot of um, the Marla reactions should have painted a picture early on, but really, you know, again, it just went right over my head. But, you know, I think if you were, I think it's definitely possible to have gotten it. I just never heard anyone admit that, which is very much like the sixth sense. I don't know that I ever met anybody get, there had to be people that saw that, but I don't, you know, it seems like 90% of the people you talk to just didn't get it, you know? The, the big Bruce Willis reveal in that film was like, oh, like, you know, one of the one of the great Alfred Hitchcock like sure. moments, you know, in the modern in modern parlance, you know, definitely. Yeah, it's hard to know and go back and unknow <laughs> what you might have known. It'd be fun because uh, people always say that like, oh, man, to play Bioshock again for the first time to watch whatever for the first time. I'm like, I know it's it a would treat. Be, it, would be, it would be it's almost dystopian like Black Mirror stuff where imagine you could do that. But imagine it got out of control or you erase things you didn't want to erase or it, neural pathways were all That's manipulated and fucked up because of, because people were trying to go back and erase horrible things that happened to them or like as simple as like, oh, I want to see this movie again. Oh, I saw the score to a game so I can go watch it fresh. You oh, know, like, right. But and, you could be super selective. Right. I think I think I might have something here. I think you but might have it. something there, actually. That's very Black Mirror-ish. I like pretty it. Pretty cool. We brought up Marla, played by Helena Bonham Carter, of course, longtime wife of Tim Burton, but also an actress, of course, in her own right. Great actress. And the only female presence in this movie. And you know what I'm thinking about this is. By the way, I think. Pretty much literally the only female presence in the movie, like. Period. And I feel like it's interesting to interesting choice. Yeah. She plays the role. Interestingly. This kind of slutty, loose, dirty, you know, like grimy chick that I think represents more of what Ed Norton doesn't acknowledge about himself. I know she's her own character, but I also feel like she's a part of him, too, and represents a a depraved part of him. And I like her performance. And knowing that, knowing what we know about the end of the movie, you kind of feel bad for her because it's like, holy shit, she's like the biggest victim. And all of this, other than the people that might have died. She really in this terrorist is. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. And so you you feel for her. But I really love and we haven't even gotten into this. Like, I really think it is so clever to. 
write a film in which it begins or a, a book in which it really begins that this guy is finding meaning by going to these groups where people are dying or struggling with addiction or something horrible. And then that he sees a reflection of himself and he admits that her lie reflected my lie is the line. Her lie right. reflected my right. lie. Excellent yeah. line. And by the way, I, ref- I said this over and over again, and I, I assume most of it is drawn from the book, but the writing in this is exceptional. And it really goes to show you like, man, because we, we just watched like episode two. Now, obviously, we you don't want to compare a sci-fi space opera to a drama based on a book, but you want to talk about dialogue. If this dialogue was like if episode two's dialogue was like this, then I think Hayden Christensen could have worked as Anakin. I mean, I, that's how good I think. Great point. The dialogue is in this. And he's finding solace in the, in the fake healing. And I love this line he says where he, when he finds sleep, he says every evening I would die. And it's very cool. And one of the things that I, so I was watching them, I, I, I didn't really remember anything about Marlon. I'm like, is Marlon real? And I didn't know if one of the hints she is, but I didn't know if one of the hints was she is always smoking indoors and is always in traffic. Yeah. When she's talking. Yeah. So I, I didn't know that almost seemed to be like a MacGuffin where like you're looking for something weird and you're you're totally focused on the wrong weird thing to kind of obfuscate from what's going on with Brad Pitt. And so I thought that that was pretty cool, too. And um, so what did you think about Marla and uh, the, the, the performance? Such a cool, such a cool character. I love the character. I love also what you said about. Well, really, you know, like when you get her, you know, everybody knows Helena Bottom Carter as Bellatrix Lestrange now from the Harry Potter movies. And she kind of cut her teeth on that. It kind of made her name after being apparently being around TV and movies since like the mid 80s. Apparently she was on Miami Vice for a couple of seasons which is really oh, and you don't and you don't me. remember her. I mean, I don't. Most, re- most recently she was. I don't know if you I'm, probably have some audience members that watch it. I like my female period pieces, of course, but she's on the crown. Uh, oh, she that's Princess right. Margaret she's in that too. For because they, they change cast every two years. OK, so we're on the third cast now. And she was in the second cast as Princess Margaret. So she was awesome in that. I mean, absolutely amazing. Cool. But yeah, I could see. Yeah, her I was that. looking. I was looking at her stuff and it is interesting. Like, I, I, I don't I know her face. I've seen her in many things. But you're right. Like, she's kind of just been around. She's been around she's been for around. a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. And she could wear a lot of different hats. You know, you could, I guess you could dress her up a lot of different ways. But she's a mm-hmm. great actress. And she she's is. got this weird thing. Like, she's very colorful, despite oftentimes, you know, being portrayed with a very pallid skin and maybe wearing just black or very earthy colors. Like, she's, she has a very colorful resonance, despite that typical visual i think often associated with tim burton because of the collaborations because of the relationship because she's sort of seen as like this tin tim burton muse right she's she's got like a filmography it's like half of his films from planet of the apes through big fish through corpse bride i think she's in charlie and the chocolate factory sweeney todd she plays the queen of hearts in alice in wonderland and burton's alice in wonderland so a lot of times you think about her in that very gothic sort of visual sense but she she carries that through here too, which is really interesting. And she has that very specific Helena Bonham Carter flavor. And I can't see a lot of people like supposedly Reese Witherspoon was cast in this part and it was a go. And I like her a lot. I think she's really charming, very appealing, but I can't see her in this no, part. Me neither. You know me what neither. I mean? Like it seems I like, like her it's too, really but yeah, that very yeah. much 
a Helena Bonham Carter type type of role, you know. And I think sure. you know it's inter- it's interesting, Kyle, like seeing her as like an extension of the Ed Norton character, or you know, ultimately of Tyler Durden, or seeing her as this kind of an equal. You know, you have the Ed Bur- the Ed Norton character. He's kind of like enslaved, right, by this soulless, corporate, emotionless, apathetic company who's basically selling humans down the line to, in turn of a profit and how like he's kind of enslaved to this job. He lives in this very beige, very whitewashed gray world where he's trying to derive happiness from like shopping in a catalog and trying to fill those voids in with stuff, you know, it's very Gen X thing. And then meets this woman, you know, basically trying to feel, trying to escape or dodge the numbness by going to these like self-help groups, like cancer support groups or whatever, you know, sickle cell anemia support groups, whatever. And feeling like that's what he needs in order to feel alive. And that's what he needs in order to feel listened to. And that's the only way he could then sleep and sort of escape from that insomnia. And he meet, you know, this a young professional, Right. But then meeting a girl who's basically destitute and basically has nothing like goes to these meetings just to get free coffee and food and stuff. But generationally, even though she's not, she doesn't, she's not living in this high rise apartment building and stacking it with expensive, you know, or shopping with, you know, Ikea furniture and having this very respectable wardrobe and everything Ed Norton's striving for. She's the exact opposite. But generationally, they are in the same boat because they both feel extremely unfulfilled and are basically using these support groups to their own ends. You know, it's very interesting. Like, like they're different, but they're very much the same. You know, again, like almost if you take Ed Norton, Brad Pitt, and the uh, Marla Singer character and put them together, it almost forms, like you said, one person is really interesting yeah it is it is yeah and i i think in some way marla graphs onto the narrator in an even deeper way it's even the more the thing that's even more subdued i think inside ed norton sure than even what tyler represents for him right but i really liked her performance as well and it was cool to see her and again uh, reese witherspoon's interesting because i think it would have given the role more femininity Yes, definitely. But I don't know that that's what it calls for. I think she brings the perfect amount of gravity to to the role. And so I I was very happy to see her there as well. And we have to talk about Meatloaf. Courtney Williams wrote in and said, you're too old, fat man, and your tits are too big. (laughs) This movie cast a bunch of big names or future big names in minor roles. Meatloaf being a prime example whose performance uh, really stood out. So I didn't realize until I was putting all of the shit together for the for, like last night I was sitting at my computer and I was putting all the uh, inquiries together and someone's like meatloaf and I'm like oh fuck that is meatloaf because in my mind I was just like who is that and and eventually you accept it it's like oh it's an actor you've seen many times like I always just kind of after five minutes I'm like that's it the struggle's <laughs> over it's just a dude I've seen a bajillion times in my life and no, I was like, oh, shit, that's Meatloaf. And I forgot, Meatloaf does act. I mean, he's acted for a long time. He's good. I was looking at, I was looking at uh, his filmography, actually, and he was like an early, you know, SNL started in the mid-70s. He used to appear as a musical guest on SNL, which I thought was funny. And one of the people that he appeared with at um, SNL was uh, Christopher Lee, who we just uh, recently oh, wow. spoke about. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, he was like the actor. 
and Meatloaf was like the musical. That's cool. So, what did you think of Meatloaf's performance in this and his inclusion? And we can talk about Jared Leto too. It's interesting that they cast two musicians as those roles. Yeah. Although Jared Leto wasn't known for Thirty Seconds to Mars at this point yet. Not yet. And uh, that's in 2002 when that first record comes out. Sublime record, by the way, if you guys want to go check it out. He's really talented. He's he's awesome. Oh, 30 Seconds to Mars' first two records are amazing. So talk to me a little bit about his inclusion and what you thought about his performance. And, of course, the chant that comes from his death, which I think is the uh, (laughs) one of the funniest things in the movie. Although there's a much funnier scene I want to talk about a little later. But yeah, so talk talk to me about Meatloaf. Not the Meatloaf you don't like. No, not that. Or the uh, musician. I can't talk about that Meatloaf. No, no, no. Yeah, he's awesome. I mean, he's great because we know him. Gen Gen Xers, we know him from, you know, growing up. And maybe, interestingly, one of the first artists that we knew from MTV in the early to mid 80s because they, they played his videos so much in rotation that early, I would say by the mid 80s, he was like on a constant loop. And it's great because he's one of those guys that transcends from his musical career, very successful rock career, to, you know, he's, he's actually quite a good actor. And, you know, he's just, I mean, he really fits the bill for that everyday schlub that becomes like one of Fight Club's slash Operation Mayhem's head, head lackeys or early adopters, you know? And he's, despite his appearance, you know, you get all types. You get the young guys, you get the out of shape guys, you get the businessmen, lawyers, the meek looking dudes. Like everybody is trying to like capture that energy of just that primal raw thing of like being in fight club and he's like the perfect dude for that you know and he's he's got the testicular cancer and he's got the he's over estrogened so he's got the huge like man boobs and everything like that like supposedly that was like a hundred pound suit that he wore that meatloaf had to wear on set so crazy but so (laughs) super good it's a it's hysterical it's totally hysterical one of the most memorable things of the film and yeah jared leto yelling at him on the on the stoop is awesome you know disassociated from everything else you know what it kind of reminded me of was and again it keeps bringing coming back to gi joe for me recently but just like how you might imagine cobra recruiting or something where like dudes <laughs> like you know they're lawyers and their accountants and all this kind of stuff they're just tired of the shit and they become terrorists i love which that is idea basically That's what awesome. happens well they have to they are all terrorists right and they're yeah, all they all end up becoming financial dudes and hr <laughs> all that shit <laughs> but uh i want to ask you Dave, about the consumerism in the film now it's literally there and what I, one of the things i found interesting was how they used real ad, real companies rather sure. real businesses and rory wrote in and said listen up maggots how many starbucks cups did you notice david fincher hid one in every single scene of the movie i guess it was a nod to the anti-capitalist and establishment themes of the movie but i would be interested to hear your thoughts i didn't know that i saw a lot of them but i didn't know it was like in every scene but i will say that and I remarked this to Micah because I was like, this is weird because yeah. I was noticing there are Apple products. Yeah, there are lots of Starbucks products, lots of Pepsi products. And they can't do that without permission. So what did you think that conversation was like where it's like we're going to use your brand as an example of everything that's wrong with American capitalism? And they're like, OK, I, I isn't that weird? I mean, I, I couldn't walk away from that. There is no way they had they didn't have permission to do that. So, oh, no, 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 don't you find that strange and interesting? It is. Like, that's, very that was like one of the most great takeaways. If you're writing a book, you can write whatever you want. Oh, Tyler Durden's obsessed with Pepsi and 
made him into a terrorist. You know, like they're not they can't do anything about that. But showing it is a different thing. And I was fascinated by those three companies being involved in something that is telling you that it's these brands that are ruining everything. So I, what did you think of that? Is I don't that know if crazy? you drew that. Isn't that weird, though? I don't, I don't know how that even happened. It is weird, but, you know, it could go back and I'm sure it does go back to this notion in advertising and in life that no publicity is bad publicity, right? Just having your name, mm-hmm. Starbucks, Krispy Kreme, Apple, Ikea, Volkswagen, I think it's Heineken, BMW, like it doesn't matter because I think people, you know, if you put Rolex into this, into this if you put Cartier, if you put Brooks Brothers, like the Nordstrom, whatever, like things have, people have a perception of brands anyway. Right. I think any advertiser, any corporate structure will tell you that. You know what I mean? So it's it just have your name in there. It's product placement, you know, that again, returning to that philosophy of no publicity is bad, you know, that Mm -hmm. just having it in there is enough. And it lends credence to the reality of the film or what messages are being sent because you're not you don't have to use you know, a fake, it doesn't have to be Starbucks. You know, it could be actual Starbucks with the logo. It could be BMW with the logo. You know what I mean? Like it has, it's, uh, that's the way, that's really the way to do it. That's what kind of drives the point home. So it's super, I love that. And I, you know, I love, it feels very, you know, he already talked about this conversation, you know, feels very nineties to me. We talked about Ben Folds. We mentioned the Matrix. We mentioned Limp Biscuit. We mentioned Krispy Kreme. It's like very, you know, everything feels very 90s to me. Mm -hmm. And it's so besides this movie, I think being pretty timeless, definitely capturing a feel with young Gen Xers leaving college and going into the real world type of thing, at least for me. But I think it definitely feels very beholden to the 90s because of the companies, you know, like going down the line with a baseball bat and smashing car headlights and going after the Volkswagen because it really was perceived as a very feminine car back then. You know what I mean? Going after the, the BMW because it's an $85,000 car and then saying, well, no, no, not that one because it's a little Nissan Sentra that costs fourteen grand, And that was like right. a, that was a, a regular blue collar dude's car. Don't touch that one. You know, feels very 90s to me. I lo- and I love that. You could look back and see, you know, most of these corporations exist today, of course. But yeah, Krispy Kreme will always feel 90s to me. Like that's when everybody started sweating Krispy Kreme and Starbucks earlier in the decade, earlier in that decade too. So I love having the inclusion of those specific companies. Feels very, feels very timely. The late Nate wrote in and said, hey, Brothers M, just a quick question this time. Did this film inspire you to make a fight club with your friends? I feel like the interest in street fighting went up drastically after this movie. Did you know any? I mean, obviously I was too young, but did you know of any of this stuff happens apparently? And I've never been I've never been privy to any of it a lot of this stuff's on youtube now i mean there are people like fighting and shit on youtube and doing all that and i guess it's just above board but did you did you have any interest in joining this sort of thing and again i feel like i feel like fight club could have been anything i don't feel like it had to have been fighting i think that's the most visceral and interesting yeah thing they might have been able to choose but Especially because it's not about the violence They're They they don't. I love like the, actually the fight club scenes because like they're beating the shit out of each other and then they're hugging each other and congratulating each other and helping each other up. Even like it's not about winning or losing. And they say that, I think, literally. No, so, right. 
any anything to say about this like have you ever encountered anything like that or even it's, an, in- it's such an interesting thing for me again like the, it, the way this movie has you kind of turning the lens on yourself not just again and talking about what we were talking about a little earlier and like self-analyzing your own materialism which you had said earlier very well i think like everybody's into something right like i'm into nice watches i'm into specific car brands specific clothes like tyler having a having a nice closet full of like having a wardrobe you could be proud of having a specific set of golf clubs whatever it is every having a certain guitar because i'm really into my music like whatever it is everybody has a little bit of that you know i see that with myself with cars like i really enjoy cars and automotive engineering and driving and stuff so everybody has a little bit of that something but with this too it has you looking at like almost getting it in a way like all right like i understand what's going on with fight club and and like you said it's not about winning it's not even about violence or fighting or combat it's about deriving stimulation through like your own inherent maybe deep-seated maybe suppressed humanity you know like feeling pain experiencing victory maybe but also developing endurance you know going through that kind of thing and surviving which is like tasking yourself with something almost like almost like skydiving but different like can i stand toe to toe with one of my contemporaries and have a fist fight and get up at the end of it and walk away and what that must feel like how exhilarating that must feel or you know surviving through like a bit of chaos because life is so ordered and mm. planned with work mm. and families and having meals and planning vacations like can i endure chaos it's like a re- it's like a return to being caveman or cavewoman you know and you know how would having such a powerful thrill register and i think about it in our lives Kyle like there are more it's interesting to think of like this movie inspiring actual fight clubs and that's that piques my interest a little bit and i i say this being like the least tough dude i've ever known like maybe never even had like a proper fight since i was a kid like that type of thing just the idea of it there's something magnetic about that but also i think a lot of us have that in life already maybe we go to the track and race a car maybe we go hunting maybe we you know maybe even something as seemingly innocuous as like golf you know what i mean like we we have things where we're looking for an outlet you know I would especially think when you were talking about this earlier, it had occurred to me with hunting. That's a return. Now we talk about our base um, sort of instinctual background of where we come from as, as people, right? The hunter gatherer sort of like return to a very simple um, survivalist way of life. It's not real. I mean, in most places in the world, in the Western world, at least for you know us and the people, most of the people listening to the show, it's not necessary to hunt. Go to the supermarket, go to the store, whatever, right? But there's still people still have a passion. For instance, for hunting. Let's say hunting deer, for instance. Mm-hmm. So that to me is a smaller example of returning to a more primitive human endeavor, if not way of life, right? So. That to me speaks to 
a smaller example of something larger, which would be actually having a space and the secret club where we beat each other, beat the shit, you know, beat the living pulp out of each other every weekend. And I had never heard of that, though. Like you, I've heard the stories that this actually existed. And the book and the, the book was in 96, the movie in 99 did inspire this in real life. But what I wanted to ask you was, do you see yourself then or now kind of going in for that? Do you think that's something you would be interested in in some way, even the in the smallest is, bit? The answer is yes, but I'm not willing to deal with the consequences. And what, what I mean by that is, like there's that scene where Jared Leto gets the shit beat out of him. Oh my God. Down, all that kind of stuff, right? Like, life. Yeah. Not that I would, it would get to that point. It was weird that it got to that point in the, in the film for them. But I don't want to, I'm not afraid of the pain. I just don't want to deal with like broken teeth. A yeah. fucked up nose, stuff like sure. that. But I think I would like, you know, like if you, but that's the thing is that without the consequence, there is no visceral excitement anymore right unless the consequence the biggest fear to you is pain which to me i'm like all right i've, I've been punched in the face like i have on several occasions it hurts it's a very unique feeling yeah. i think a lot of people know that feeling it's like a very nasally very unpleasant yeah it's like very unique getting punched in the face and i just and i've never i've been in a as we said before when i was younger i was in a couple of fights i got the shit kicked out of me yeah you know but I don't consider myself a coward. And like I said, people respected that I stood up and I stood in. You know? Sure. sure. And no one said a word that I like got kicked, you know, because it wasn't like I ran away or something. And that's as close as you've probably gotten. I would argue not you, but you in general, most of us have gotten to that sort of base primal, you know, way of life hearkening back to thousands of years ago. It, it's so interesting to me, like. You know, there's this thing like, and what's the difference between like seeking a thrill? Like when we go to seek thrills, we go to Six Flags, right? We go on a, like the right. scariest roller coaster in the world, but it's a thrill because I guess in the back of our minds, there's some sort of inherent danger. You're doing something you wouldn't normally do in this, this, this ride designed to give you an experience, but we're hoping, you know, and, and realistically there's a 99.99% chance that we're not going to get hurt or injured on this thing. What's the difference between a thrill between that and a thrill where you know you're gonna walk away a little worse for wear than right. when you went in at best, right? Maybe and maybe yeah. you're gonna wait you're gonna walk away in quite damaged. You know, is that can you weigh those thrills? And the other thing is like it's fascinating. The whole thing is fascinating, not just in the movie in a fictional sense, but in a real life sense. Like the only real difference. You know, I think we could all speak to like, you and I have very cool careers, right? We get to do what we love to do. It's not a typical work a day, blue collar or white collar thing where we don't care. We're doing it for a buck. It's very unfeeling, very cold, like get in, get out. And a lot of people have to deal with that in life. And I understand the notion of like growing numb or, you know, where is the excitement? How can we develop, you know, where is the feeling? How can we feel like we're alive again? How do we stingle, like, re-stimulate those nerve endings and, like, get pumped up for something? And the only real difference between, you know, Fight Club and Operation Mayhem and, or real life, like Tyler Durden's actual real life that he feels really, like, encumbered by and, you know, maybe a little claustrophobic about 
is they're both the mentality behind both things is like a truly hedonistic philosophy, like go for what makes you happy, right? But a large part of it in the corporate, young, professional sense is like doing things to make you happy via other people's perception. I got the nice khakis. I got the nice car. I got the high-rise apartment. I got the sick furniture, whatever it is. And the other one is seeking satisfaction through the exact opposite by basically bucking what anybody else thinks. You know, what anybody else thinks doesn't mean shit. And it's all about what I want at a very base level. It's both pursuing your happiness, but one is saying this is to please everybody and look at me. And the other one is like, fuck what anybody thinks. That's what's interesting to me. And that's what's, Really, I think a lot of us as humans in a modern age, and I say modern age, you know, being like the last, at least the last hundred years, right? Is like, we don't know what that feels like. We don't know what it's like in society now to say like, I'm going to pursue my happiness and literally a hundred percent genuinely fuck what anybody else thinks. I'm just going to do me a hundred percent. You could say you're going to do you and be rebellious and all that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean the same as what they're in today's society in real life as what Fight Club is saying it is, you know? And that's what's interesting to me about if the, this Fight Club existed in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I kind of, it's kind of interesting to know, like, and it's kind of sad as humans to know, like, you're never going to feel that. It just doesn't work that way in the world. So it is kind of this fantasy element of like, shit, like, even for a night or a week or a weekend, it would be kind of cool to see what that feels like. Yeah. Again, as long as I could avoid the consequences, personally, as long as I could avoid permanent consequences for it. Yeah. But that that's, not that part of, that's not part of the So that's not part of it. And therefore, I don't know how embracing I would be. I think it's it's ironic, though, that and interesting that in seeking meaning, they are they they embrace complete nihilism. That, that's exactly what it is. And there is no meaning in nihilism. There's a fine line between like Randy and objectivism in which you live for yourself and just complete myopic nihilism, which is what these guys, I think, veer into. And they use a great term. He, he refers to the to everyone as slaves with white collars. Yes. And if they consider themselves slaves, then there is no worse consequence. I mean, what is the consequence? Death. If you're a slave, then you'd want to probably die. <laughs> So, of course, these guys have death wishes and you can kind of make those connections maybe between that. The sicker part, I think, for me as a personally is. It would be interesting to see these things from as long as everyone was above board, like going to these underground fight clubs to bet on things would be, you know, to watch and to and to bet and to like just be there. Sure. Because That stuff definitely happens. And. Yeah, that would be that would be, an, a, you know, as long as it wasn't like anyone was being coerced or anything like that, if to grown men wanted to go fight each other and people bet on it, you know, in some basement somewhere. It's interesting. You know, the rules. I like, are I like weird, too. dark things like that. You know, it's, it's my business. It's not your business. You know, well, like, I mean, it probably goes on, right? I mean, think of like, yes, I think this so. is a different thing. And this is also terrible, obviously, but cockfighting, right? Where, where, <laughs> Little, little chicken, chickens. I'm talking about guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> chicken, pitting Yield chickens Jerry against Seinfeld. Them. I'm thinking. I used to see this go on when I was still living on Long Island and commuting. So this is probably the early aughts. 
on Long Island taking the train from the suburbs to the city for work, I would see it in the backyards of some of these places in Western Long Island and Queens, like guys in the back of like some yard or the back of like some building, work building or an office, uh, you know, industrial complex or something, having chicken fights. And like, it was like on, like watching it on a movie, like they were gathering around, crouching with their money in their hand and like watching the two chickens go at it. So this isn't like a primitive thing that we're talking about hearkening back to like 70, 80 years ago. This, this went on, but it's like kind of like a similar thing. And I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does go on, but there is something I have to admit, like I think back to specific people when this, around the time this movie came out, you know, being in my early to mid twenties and I could think of in my mind's eye, a couple of guys in particular that were really into this movie, you know, and sort of laughing at them them and in retrospect and poo-pooing it a little bit but at the same time i gotta say it's pretty fascinating like i and also you want to measure i think i don't know if this is a guy thing or if this is a human thing because it could speak to the, you ladies out there too but there's something even the most unfighting dude like myself no training no martial arts training no Never having endeavored in that space at all, boxing, martial arts in any way. Never really, I have no background in fighting whatsoever. I wouldn't know what to do. There's something even about a guy like me who you just want to see what you're made of. Like sure. pit me up against another 165 pound dude with like a, a similar background. Yeah. And let, at, at its rawest level, what would happen? There's a fascination with that. Well, that's why that's why that scene with that scene with the priest is so interesting because even though it's it's kind of in passing because <laughs> that poor dude. yeah because he runs up and you kind of see what happens when someone because he like runs up and kind of punches him but like hits him like in the side of the face and like <laughs> I think that's the way it would go it probably go that way for me too the animal fighting thing is so interesting because that I feel like is truly depraved because the animals are not they have no agency right yeah. so and you're not at risk. Be, Right, exa exactly. And so I remember thinking it was wrong that Michael Vick did the dog fighting thing. He obviously went to prison mm. for that, but I was a big that, be that became an even sharper point of conflict in me when I became a dog person as opposed to just the person who was like, Oh, it's sad that that happened to animals almost almost dispassionately. Dig, I wanted to touch on a couple other things here. Sure. Craig Phillips wrote in and said, Good day, gentlemen. Yo. From the moment the film starts, the Dust Brothers soundtrack is altogether catchy, poignant. And sets the mood from scene to scene, almost becoming a character unto itself. I'd love to hear your thoughts of the film's beautiful but unconventional score. And then he says, fun fact, Radiohead almost wrote the music to this film. After Brad Pitt and Ed Norton reached out to Tom York with request, however, the singer turned them down and the rest is history. Mistake. I heard that. Now, now, uh, what do you think? You had brought up the soundtrack actually early in the movie, or I'm sorry, early in the conversation, the end of the movie. But... What do you make of the Dust Brothers contributions to this film? The the soundtrack to me, it's not the soundtrack, the score really, I guess it's both in this in this instance, is really reminiscent of the time. Yes. It feels, it sounds like I can't even explain it like the, You know, like the, like that or there's a real rhythmic, frantic industrial mm. sound mm. that is reminiscent of that era Good and adjectives. and perfectly captured in this soundtrack it couldn't have been it's so funny to think about radiohead doing this it would have been the biggest thing radiohead have had ever done 
ever. And that says something because they have a few really huge albums. Oh my God, they're huge. But having done something for this film, I think would have been for the mainstream, a really big thing for them. So it would have been interesting to hear what they could have come up with. And this was in the post OK Computer, like Kid A era. So yeah. who knows? But anyway, um, what do you make of the soundtrack? Do you have any further thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting to talk about Radiohead and Tom York involved in this because I don't know if it would have sounded that much different. You know, I love Radiohead. I, I, I love, you know, their contribution to music and very innovative and very um, influential. But the Dust Brothers, I don't, I didn't know too much about them going in. I still don't know that much about them. But I love the score in this film. Like you said, has that very electronic, modern, contemporary sort of computerized audio flavor to it, and really, I think, helps flesh out the atmosphere of the film. You know, you think of David Fincher in general. You know, he comes from a very visual place with film, obviously, with directing commercials and being a film director, and his background and and um in graphics and uh, even digital animation and all that kind of stuff. But I always think of how Fincher, especially this movie, late 90s, has that very gray silver nitrate patina over the top. It looks a little dirty, a little grainy, high contrasted lighting, and the shot composition is very dynamic, very thought out. It comes from a very visual place. And I think the music in general... Is, is sort of a nice backdrop to add to that very 90s atmosphere. You know, you think about, again, I think about movies that also came around this same period, like The Matrix, where it has a very similar flavor and it, it lends to that, you know, the whole conglomeration of what the film, you know, the senses of the film, what it looks and what it tastes like and what it feels like and what it sounds like. And then, you know, I think, you know, we have to say the Pixies wears my mind. You know, the end of this film, it's such an interesting song, man, because I don't know that much about the Pixies, although everything I've heard of them, I've liked. And it was one of those bands to me where I was like, I don't know if these guys are from the 70s or if they came out like five years ago. You know what right, I mean? It was like right. one of those timeless sounds. And I think this song specifically, I think could have came out last year or I think it could be. You know, I had no idea the song was from the 80s. I had no idea the song was from the 80s or that the Pixies even started in 86. And this song, I think, was off their first popular album as they started to get big. But this song is so strange to me because it's one of those songs that would come on the radio that I'd be like, I don't know like when this song is from. It has a timelessness to it. It's anthemic. It's like it's offbeat, but also very powerful. You know, and it, it, it does have that anthem-like quality to it. And I I listened to this song like four times this morning because I was like, this is a fucking, it's just a good song. You know what I mean? It's like one of those iconic sure. songs. Do you, what about you with the Pixies? Did you have any um, frame of reference for them or fandom for that? I really didn't Yeah, know they're much. fine. I mean, uh, I wasn't introduced to them until college. That's when I first really heard about them. Okay. But at IGN, there were a couple guys that were really into the Pixies. Uh, the music editor, Spence, and the old editor-in-chief, Hillary, were really into them. But yeah, apart from what I've heard, they're fine. But I've never really investigated their discography, to be honest. So I wouldn't know much about, yeah. about them. I wanted to ask, since we were actually, just as an aside, since we were talking about audiovisual stuff, what did you think about the inclusion of some CG in the movie? I actually think that it looked pretty good. The The intro is obviously very intense, but the 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 spirit cave with the penguin I think looks really good and the planes crashing in the air look really good the exploding buildings oh, look really good I'm curious if you agree with the 
the quality aesthetic there. And again, with Fincher's background, not a huge surprise that he would bring that to bear. But I was actually I didn't remember there being so many CG cues in the in the movie. And there are. So there are. There really are. Did did any of them uh, stand out to you? Yeah, I know Digital Domain. The visual effects house still around today, I believe, um, handled a lot of that with David Fincher. And I like how thought out that is. I mean, really, you know, he has such a profound interest in technology, his background in computer assisted um, stop motion. I think he said he handled the, the uh, ATST walkers during the Endor battle in Return of the Jedi, you know, where, where they had the um, magnetic rods that ran through that were computer controlled and all that kind of stuff. Really interesting stuff. And I think he started out in, Fincher started out with Lucas on that animated film that I had never seen. Very avant-garde. Sort of like an, a typical Disney animated feature meets uh, Yellow Submarine, where um, I think it's called um, Twice Upon a Time. An animated film that I don't have a big frame of reference for. I think Lucas did it in between Empire and Jedi, or he produced it. He didn't direct it. But I love his background in just visual filmmaking and storytelling, and the fact that he's also, at the same time, very interested in technology, Fincher. So doing the shots where you're traveling up, you know, the the opening 90 seconds where you're kind of seeing, like, the synapses and firing and the nerve endings and the nervous system, human nervous system as you're traveling through. And then the garbage can shot, which was amazing, which I heard like took like 90 minutes of frame to render back then and stuff like that. Very ambitious with a lot of like translucent and reflective stuff back then. That was a big deal. You know, we've come a long way in 20 plus years with VFX, but you know, besides just the visual effects, just having that, dynamic visual texture in the film where you're trying to really make it as visually compelling and thoughtfully crafted in terms of shots as possible in terms of composition and what i think fincher does really really well not in just this film but in every film again you could see the storyboarding through it you know it's like you're assembling a series of shots to tell a story in a very specific way And I think CG is a big part of that with Fincher, but he does it in a subtle way. I think he's really interesting. I always go down the director rabbit hole, you guys know, when we do these topics. And I think the cool thing about Fincher, maybe unlike any director we've talked about on the show in three plus years, is that he has a style, a very specific visual style, because the visual is so important to him. I think the visual component is so important to what he does. He has a very specific style without being nailed down to one particular calling card or hallmark style. Really, it's not style. He's just a stylish filmmaker in terms of what you see with your eyes, you know, in in terms of the visual component of the storytelling. And I like that. And he's got big balls, you know, very bold and a lot of conviction. Oh, A lot of conviction, and he talks about that. I I saw him do a panel. I don't know if it was a TED Talk or something else, where he said, like, five to ten years in of being a professional filmmaker, he learned, like, the whole whole dynamic of I'm I'm not asking. This is – it's like my way or the highway. Not in a dickish way, but in a way of, like, I'm steering the ship visually. I've learned a lot via visual effects and working on commercials and working on music videos, like – 
I'm the guy in charge of how this is. Me and the cinematographer are going to wear that, wear those hats. And I'm not asking you, I'm telling you that with conviction, this is how it's going to be. And I love that you see that in his films and that he kind of walks the line between traditional visual storytelling, like a Hitchcock where shot to shot and the timing and the editing is just so, but also the fact that there's a digital component, there's a component of technology and incorporating the newest and latest shit and not being beholden to any of those two things, but doing them together, which is really cool. You don't see that a lot, maybe with a Spielberg who's a, you know, that's like the ultimate maverick anyway. But I think Fincher is really, really good at that. And, you know, I didn't know he was um, even exec producing Netflix's Love, Death, and Robots anthology animated series because that might be a good vehicle for the idea you had earlier in the show, Kyle. Mm. You know what I mean? Pitch it Black Mirror style. Very Black Mirror feel to that show. You might have something there. That'd be interesting. You might do it. Dig, I wanted to end with one thing we got from the audience, which I think will be a good conversation to, to finish things off on. But before I do that, I do want to bring up just one scene yeah, yeah. that I have to give a shout out to because it's fucking hysterical. And that is the uh, movie theater scene. The, oh. the the scene where they, they're cutting, you see him cutting the movies. I, I think that move, that scene had me dying. So I was actually like hysterical. It's so well shot. The different reactions, like people not noticing, but then like kid crying and the parents like, <laughs> looking at each other. It had a very Willy Wonka feel to it, yes. like where it was very, you know, and, well said. and uh, I just love like the uh, like that's all you hear, like just a one shot that it's just like clipped in and it's just going. Otherwise, dude, it's so funny. I just had to get there's nothing else to say. I had to say about that shot. I just wanted to I, it was in my notes and I had to write that. It's down. one of those cartoony sort of cutaway moments. It, uh, you said it perfectly. It feels very Willy Wonka. What I didn't realize and what I wouldn't have realized if I didn't read this was like that was fincher's way of saying like giving a clue like some foreshadowing that this is going to happen in our movie there's going to be a a breaking point where we splice together these two things and and look for it you know which i thought was interesting so besides that just that cartoony fun cutaway that's very memorable you know i thought that was a i thought that it's it's very fincher-esque and being so thoughtful the other thing i wanted to bring up kyle before i forget that you had mentioned this earlier is in regards to Helena Bonham Carter's performance in this movie and how good it is, there are other females. They're kind of throwaway characters. You have them in the self-help groups and in the support groups, and you have the one woman I could think of from the hotel. She tells Tyler, like, oh, you you made all these calls or whatever. It would have been better to get rid of all the other female characters, I think. Why not go all the way with that? You know what I mean? You have this very masculine machismo fight club lashing out at Gen X males, largely, obviously, that's what this movie's about, that a comment or a commentation that you're getting too soft, you're putting all your stock in the wrong thing, like you're forgetting how to be a man, that type of thing. Why not just have her be the only female in the movie? You know what I mean? Go all the way with that, you know, if you're going to do that. Right. That's what I was saying. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. Like it, that would have been interesting. Yeah, even like ancillary characters and extras, it would have been cool to just because that would have been another, yeah, another hint. And yeah, right, certainly right. something that's conspicuous. I think it's conspicuous enough that she really is the only, you know, female character per se. But yeah, of importance. You're right. It's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting point. All right, Dave, this is the final inquiry I have here. It's from Kickstand. He says, <laughs> I first watched Fight Club in my late teens. It was a super captivating movie to me. And to this day, I really like it. As a late teen upon my first viewing, I found it powerful and was swept up in the movie. 
Edward Norton's character's existence resonated with me, w- resonated with me what I didn't want my future to look like. I'm sorry. Oh, look, okay. I never intended to join or make a fight club. That's not me. But I found it to be on the surface an intoxicatingly masculine movie. Brad Pitt is iconic and has so much confidence at what young guy wouldn't want to model themselves after that. Right. But today I see the pitfalls in the black and white 1990s portrayal of Americans. Consumers caught between a cubicle gig and an Ikea catalog. At the time before my adulthood, this likely shook the shit out of people who felt like Edward Norton's character, maybe either because of insomnia or depression, but hatred of the cycle of their life. It seems like today this movie falls on deaf ears. Consumerism is constantly reaching new highs. People are ingratiated deeper in the cycle and seem less free and more dependent on technology as a godlike figure even. While this movie still no doubt resonates with many and is relevant, I think that some of the themes it addresses have sort of slipped further off the deep end, and I haven't even mentioned the cult stuff yet. How do you think this movie has aged with you? It's a really good question to end Great with. Great question. Be- and thank you for writing in Kickstarter. Very insightful. Uh, and thank you for doing such hard work keeping bikes upright. <laughs> What's that from? Austin Powers 3, where they're like, uh, it's Nigel oh, Powers. Yeah, it's, a tri- Michael K- it's, a, it's a kickstand. It's, it's a, a tri- baby's arm holding an apple. Yeah, it's a tripod. He's a tripod. <laughs> it's a tripod. He's a yeah. tripod. <laughs> it's a mini me. So I really dig this, this idea that this movie's relevance is lost. And I mean that literally. Like, it was a fight and consumerism won. Fight Club feels in some way like a tale about a time when people tried to fight back. And didn't work. It didn't work. Now we didn't get into the whole terroristic aspect of it. I think that's mm. that shit's all weird. I don't really. I'm not even sure like what actually happens in the movie. Like I'm not convinced that all this shit happened. I don't know at the sure. end and everything. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, did they really go on this like b- the biggest terrorist attack in American history? Uh, maybe. In some way, it's cool because it mimics small uprisings we've seen, like Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party and so on and so forth and BLM. These things that have become violent sometimes, but not always, not typically. And as they try to find solutions to these, as we said earlier, age old problems of listlessness, let's say. And he's right because Starbucks is bigger than ever right now. Ikea, the guy I think that founded Ikea is one of the richest people in the world. I'm sure. I'm sure. Like one top three, top five, something like that. I'm positive like, that's the case. Pepsi is is everywhere. Apple. I mean, when Apple was in this movie, Apple was nothing compared to like literally nothing. More compared money to what than they, some countries, right? That's how it goes. Right. Yeah. Trillion dollar market caps. It's it's interesting to look at it through the lens of what Kickstand wrote in here because it reads like war correspondence now, right? Like, oh, it's it's dispatches from the front. And, it, you know, Gen, Gen X is not in their 20s anymore. We're on to different things now. So how how it, in terms of his question, he asks, how do you think this movie has aged with you? Yeah. What do you think about what he has to say here about it kind of being a relic? There is a timelessness to it again. You know, and I know this heavily applies to Gen Xers, especially with, you know, we came out of the baby boomer generation. A lot of our parents were you know, we're hippies, quote unquote. I think it's interesting for Gen X because I think we might be the first generation to, in our younger years, in our teens and 20s, kind of fall prey, if you will, to consumerism slash capitalism slash advertising, right? Where our parents were more prosperous later, right? They kind of were upwardly mobile. Some of them went to college. Some of them didn't. 
we were the first generation that largely went to college. The And also, you know, with Gen X, in a sort of defending my generation sort of way, maybe. Also, we kind of were dealing, we were the first generation to deal with inflation at a large degree. Like things became very expensive when we, as we started to get old enough to be able to afford them. Where, you know, we were buying houses for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Our parents were buying their first homes in the 70s for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. That's a big difference. So we already were kind of in the throes of materialism just because of the nature of the marketplace, the nature of the world we were coming into post-college, student loans, all of that kind of stuff. But I think beyond that, for millennials and even subsequent generations now, I think there is a timelessness to the modern human era of consumerism, especially in the West, and advertising being so powerful. And maybe to some degree, no matter which way you slice it, but maybe in a sense of what the movie is saying in that trying to assuage or fill in some sort of missing piece, some sort of deep down, deep-seated sense of dissatisfaction and wanting to fill that in with stuff. You know what I mean? Which I think is a timeless thing. And I think, again, I think that's what makes this such a fascinating type of a story because it automatically has us self-analyzing. You know, we're turning the looking glass in at ourselves. And I think a lot of it is... We're looking at it from an outside perspective as a viewer of a film, and we're like, oh, that's objectionable. Like, I don't want to fall prey to Wall Street, to Madison Avenue. I don't want to be told to buy what I don't need. Why do I know what a DeVay cover is? Right, you know what right. I mean? But at the same time, <laughs> there's something, I would argue, all of us, there's a little hypocrisy involved because a lot of us, I, I think due to just maybe, I would argue, basic human nature and how we were brought up in the modern age over the last hundred years or so, this is just a part of who we are now. You know what I mean? There's going to be some degree of that, however we accept it or reject it. You know, and that's mm. up to each one of us as individuals. So I think it's I think that's the most fascinating component of that for me is like inherently knowing there's something wrong with it, but also the hypocrisy involved for all of us because to some degree... Either the stuff, the things, the buying, the bank account probably does make us all happy to some degree, or we think it makes us happy to some degree. And kind of where does that treadmill stop and start? I don't know. But it's a fascinating question and a really maybe an important part of being self-critical. And you know, who knows? Maybe the other point is on the other side, flip side of the coin, maybe it's very tongue in cheek. I mean, this is coming from David Fincher. This guy cut his teeth and made a lot of money in the advertising world, working for huge advertising studios. I mean, I think Whedon and Kennedy did the advertising for this film. You know what I mean? So in collaboration with David Fincher. So how much of it is just kind of like you were saying before with nihilism, I would also argue maybe Dadaism, like everything is kind of like ridiculous. You know, who cares? At the end of the day, who cares? Right. Like, we're right, just right. running around this hamster wheel of asking these questions, and we're going to be doing anarchy. the same thing in another 20 years, and another yeah. 20 years, you know? Yeah, right. And and that works in the in the reverse, as we were saying, which is just how long have people been asking these questions? And perhaps kickstand 
to the, the answer to quick kickstands thing is that we'll just we'll continue to ask them. I think so. And we'll have different we'll have different answers at a different time. Yeah. That will probably change. seem as heedless and useless sure. to future generations too. Sure, sure. But it's not lost on me that it's true that we are so much further down the consumerist rabbit hole and I'm incredibly troubled by it personally. But I we all contribute to it. I just try not to live and die by materialism stuff i've been really good about that i think but shit we all we all accumulate and and look for safety and reason and meaning and all that in everything around us so it's very human and um i think fight club is a very human movie and and i i highly recommend it if if for some reason you made it through this and haven't seen it yet it was on amazon prime so that was cool i didn't have to pay for it yes yeah but you can check it out in in other spots as well digging let's end as we always do Every episode of Knockback with a dad joke. All right, my friend. You know what the other thing I was thinking about, Kyle, with this film? That, you know, like a lot of the things we cover, it's pre-9-11. And this is pre-9-11 by a couple of years. So when, Definitely. you know, Fight Club sort of evolves into Operation Mayhem and it's it's this sort of um, corporate sabotage, corporate, you know, um, terrorism sort of thing evolves. I want, you know, and it, it precedes 9-11 by a couple of years. It's interesting. It's really interesting that this piece of media existed a couple of years before that tragedy, especially with the ending of the movie with the collapsing skyscrapers and apartment buildings and stuff. It was really striking to me. And it reminded me like, you know, that's the type of thing that happens in a film or a TV show you're watching and you automatically go to that part of your brain like, all right, like quick compute. Like, was this before 9-11 or after 9-11? And then the resulting thoughts based on the answer. You know, it's like, wow, that's really, you know, it makes me think of, I don't know if this is a morbid thought or if you could relate to this at all, Kyle, or any of you guys or guys listening. Like, it makes me automatically think of like the people that were in those buildings that day that they had probably seen this movie. You know what I mean? Like they had probably, they had seen that yeah. happening on screen. Yeah. It became this real life tragedy. And it's not through the fault of anybody. You know what I mean? Like, it's just one of those things. It's one of those coincidences, those cosmic coincidences. But it always reminds me of that. And I wonder if Fight Club came after, would they have done it the same way? You always wonder that, you know? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Not with the the buildings, not with the plane scene, obviously. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's the other thing. The plane thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. But to lighten it up, I like this dad joke. Found this. I was very excited to find this one this morning. Kyle, Hmm. which kind of bear is the most condescending? Panda bear. Oh, (laughs) a panda. (laughs) You actually kind of got it. Yeah, I thought it was going to be something about like him. I don't know. Yeah, like. (laughs) how dare you get my joke that's three out of three out of 192 i've gotten not bad not bad now but that's two in like four weeks or something yeah the the last two were close i feel like i'm fresh off i'm I'm on a win streak and i'm feeling Ah, myself now you're on a high uh well yes dagan thank you for your time always good to see you so super fun uh, thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of Knockback and Last Stand Media. Remember, support us on uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash Media. We couldn't do it without you over there. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can 
follow the channel on YouTube. You can subscribe on various podcast outlets like iTunes. Leave us nice reviews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We appreciate you. We thank you. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Tom Quinn, Sorta Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Joshua, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, Jordan Mittman, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Graham Plays, Christian R., Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Nick R., Josh Hallen Rui, Tyler Watkins, Willis True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Halsey, Bobby Norman, Nuke Dukum, Jim Bob, 56, William Holbert, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H. Trons, Jordan Peterson's Fat Hog, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ali Fritz, Zach Allum, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton K, Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, James Kitzel III, Will Caldwell, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Joey Gondhaliker, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacol- Lucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings. 
but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.